you're listening to the Aim to Win podcast. I'm Wade Thomas, and I believe that every one of you has a wealth of potential just waiting to come out. And I'm here to help you reach that potential. So now, here's the Aim to Win podcast. Welcome to the Aim to Win podcast. I'm Wade Thomas, and today I'm delighted to have with me Mark Silverman. Mark is an executive coach, author, and podcast host. He works with leaders and their teams around the world to address the underlying behaviors and mindsets that sabotage all time management and productivity tools. So welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks for having me. I know I've been researching what you do and what you talk about and, and, you know, leading with this heart centered leadership is someplace I want to hang out. So I appreciate being here. Excellent. Excellent. We, we enjoy uh, heart centered people on the podcast as well. So, so one thing I like to do to get the uh, podcast started and I ask everybody this so that the audience knows who's talking to them is tell your story. How'd you get to where you are and where you're headed and all that good stuff? It, it's so funny because when, uh, when I do my workshops and when I speak in public, uh, I, I stopped telling my story because I got really bored with it and it was afraid it was going to turn into shtick. Uh, and then a few times people have known what my story is and asked me to put it back in. So I go through it, even though I'm bored with my own story, it is relevant to what I talk about. Uh, so back in 1989, uh, I was not really a functioning, going human concern. I was homeless and living in my truck. I was 130 pounds, uh, and I was driving around in that truck, and I came to Washington, D.C. to borrow some money from my brother because I just had nothing going on. I was an alcoholic and a drug addict and basically just a mess. And he helped me get sober. He said, you know, sure, I'll, I'll, give you, you know, I'll give you some money. You can live here, but you need to go to the gym. You need to go to AA and NA, and you need to take college classes. And I was 27 years old back then. Uh, so that was, the, that was the start of me having a functioning life. The reason why that's an interesting story is because I come at success differently. So several years later, after going to school and getting sober and all that, I found myself to be a millionaire living in a million dollar house, driving an expensive car with kids, you know, and all that stuff. You know, the, the, the joke I tell is I'm a short Jewish Tony Robbins, you know, like we, we, we definitely moved the ball forward, but it always felt like a foreign land. And I never really understood um, the world that I found myself in. And I was in high tech sales. So the other thing that I found out was that I was uh, ADHD. So uh, for me, I had to run three times as fast to keep up with everybody else. So time management wasn't something I was able to do. So over the years, I did uh, every time management program known to man. I would take the class. I would get the Franklin Planner. I would get the organizer. I would do all this stuff. And every single one of them failed for me. And it wasn't until years later that uh, after, after I was quite successful in the tech industry and switched over to coaching, that uh, I realized you know, when, when I had an asshole sales manager, I was really successful. <laughs> like If I had someone I was a little afraid of, uh, you know, like I would get my shit done. Uh, but for me, when I became an entrepreneur, when I became a coach, nobody told me I was becoming an entrepreneur uh, and that I would have just the most idiotic sales manager on the planet, which was me, right? So I didn't have someone holding a gun to my head telling me that things had to get done. And I was floundering and I couldn't figure out how to, you know, it wasn't like I was lazy. I had a great work ethic. I just couldn't get anything done. And I remember talking to my coach and I said, you know, I'm going to get a PhD in how to get things done with ADD. 
And he said, that's really interesting. I said, I'm going to write a book about it. And he said, Mark, that sounds like a pamphlet, maybe a PDF, not a book. I said, well, I'm, I'm going to write the book and maybe my mother will buy it and I'll buy it. And, but uh, I'm writing this book and I'm going to learn how to get things done. And here was the shocker for me. When I started to look at my behavior, the shocker for me was I only always did what I wanted to do and I never did what I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. Only always. right? So I started to look at the things that were on my to-do list that weren't getting done. And I started looking behind them and I started to see, oh, I really, you know, I said yes to this, but I wasn't really committed to doing it, right? I wasn't, I wasn't going to do it. Or uh, I, it was a really good idea. I really should do this, but it would be on my list today and then tomorrow and the next day and wouldn't get done. But what I noticed was when I wanted to run a marathon, I ran a marathon. When the new iPhone comes out, I have a new iPhone. Like I noticed certain things got done. So I started to look at how, how that affected my um, productivity. And I decided that I was only going to do what I wanted to do. And I was going to actually say no to the things I didn't want to do. That brought up a new set of problems. So I am a uh, uh, recovering people pleaser, right? So because I was homeless and because I was kind of a degenerate, I always felt guilty about who I was and about how I took from the world. So when I got sober, I became the world's best people pleaser. I became all things to all people all the time, right? I had energy. I was smart. I was competent. I, so I, you know, if someone, you need to be the committee, you, we need a committee chair for the Boy Scouts. That'd be me. We need a third grade basketball coach. I don't know anything about basketball, but I'll do it, right? You know, so I was, I was always Johnny on the spot for all that stuff until it got so overwhelming that I couldn't keep it up. Uh, so, so when I decided I was only going to do what I wanted to do and not do what I didn't want to do, here's where it rubbed up against that. I needed to learn to have difficult conversations. I never knew how to set boundaries. Like that was a whole new concept to me of saying no, or I can't do that this week. I can do it next week. Right. That kind of thing. Uh, I, so these difficult conversations became an outshoot of me deciding what I was going to do and what I wasn't going to do. And what I noticed was that the world pushed back. I was a people pleaser because I wanted everybody to love me. I wanted to gain everybody's you know, love. Uh, some people didn't like that. right? Mm-hmm. Some people got really annoyed. Some people went away. And that hurt because, again, I got my self-esteem from people liking me, from being all things to all people. Then some people grumbled about it, but then they started to shift. And then some people were like, finally, you're setting boundaries, right? Like, finally, like, you know, so the, you know, the world organized itself around me, but it was for me the internal struggle when someone said, Hey, Mark, would you do this project with me? And I loved the person, right? And, I, and it was like a great opportunity, but it was like an eight or a nine for me. It wasn't a 10. And I'd, and I'd have to say, you know, I love you. You're a 10 for me. You're amazing. And I'm not feeling this project. I can't do this project. And the, you know, the disappoint, disappointing someone else was just so hard. So that was my, my genesis, the beginning of me figuring out what actually taking control of my own life, taking ownership over my own time and attention and uh, autonomy. Uh, that, was, that, was, that, was the new, that was the new path for me. 
And that has refined over time into executive skills, into the executive coaching that you and I do. Because you know, you know as well as I do, new leaders, when they get promoted, they go from being the doers to the being the people who make sure the right work gets done, right? Now it's a whole new set of skills, delegation, holding people accountable, giving feedback, right? All that stuff. So it, it translated really well into the business world. So when I wrote the book, the book sold 1,500 copies the first day. Then it sold another 1,500 copies. So now again, a guy with ADD, I wrote a book with spelling errors, grammatical errors. It was embarrassing. Like I, nobody told me I needed a copy editor. I just didn't know. And people are giving this book to CEOs and executive teams and things. I'm like, what are you doing? This was a book I wrote for me, right? So my dogs are going to bark uh, any, any second now because the guy who cleans my fish tank is going to be walking in and they love him. So uh, on my podcast, everybody knows my dogs are part of my podcast. Um, anyway, so the book, the book has sold about 70,000 copies. Now we're in the second edition. We've cleaned up all the grammar. We've cleaned up all the <laughs> spelling errors. We've added some client stories because I've been coaching on it for so long. And now this whole concept of only tens has, has evolved into pretty much my career. Excellent. So talk about the book a little bit. So again, so the, the, you know, the book, the, the, the long and short of the book is, you know, you know, uh, Derek Sivers wrote a book and he talked about, you know, the hell yes or the hell no, there's no hell maybes, right? right? Uh, so hell yes or hell no. So a 10 is a, is a, is a hell yes. Twos, threes, fours on your list. That's, those are easy. Those are the ankle biters. And you're like, okay, I can get rid of those. When I start to get to eights and nines, things that are really good ideas, things that I should do, things that are for people that I really want to please or impress, when I start to get into those things, now I'm diluting my focus on what it is I want to accomplish. So the whole book is about how do I pay attention to what my goals, what my dreams, what my vision, what my job is. So when we talk about new executives, when we talk about young executives, their job is completely different than it was. And they don't understand that sometimes their job is to go to Starbucks and think, mm -hmm. not make sure that, uh, you know, not, not be in the trenches with their people, right? So how do you get those skills? And so that's what, the, that's what the book's about. So what, what do you see when you're working with these leaders that are making that leap? <clears throat> um, what, what are the pitfalls? What are some of the things that, they do that kind of create an overwhelming situation for themselves. One of the things that happens when, when you know, after I work with someone for about six months or you know a year, and they're really they start to get really good at delegating. They start to get really good at understanding that their job is different than it used to be. Then they start to get the doubt comes in, and they're like, "What am I really here for? What do I really do? <laughs> like uh, you know, they, like who needs you know who needs me?" And they don't value those other skills. That they need, right? So that's when that's when we we realize that your job as you move up the ladder. So you know, if you're an entrepreneur, as your business grows, or if you're in the corporate world, and as you move up the ladder, your job becomes less and less and less to do, and more and more to coach. So you know, executives need our skills more and more in order to make sure the right work gets done. Right? Business would be so much easier if it didn't have to deal with humans. Right, you you know, dealing dealing with humans to get work done is the hardest thing because you know, COVID happens, politics happen, you know, someone a death in the family happens. All these things, this 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 um, load that people are bearing, uh, 
influences how they're doing their job. Then there's the skill levels. Then you know. Then then there's you know the leadership skills and all that stuff. So it you know the skill set for an executive these days is completely different than uh, than any other part of the job. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So you know, I, I kind of love you know the idea of tackling these kind of issues, right? The um, the overwhelm things like that because it really does take some self compassion as a leader. Um, how do you see that, and, and how do you um, how do you work with leaders to kind of get them to be compassionate towards themselves and not be so worried about people pleasing? Hmm. It, you know, it, it's different. It's different for so, you know, like again, you as you know, the instructions for your client comes stamped on their forehead, right? Some of them, some of them, you're working on self compassion. Some of them, you got to get them to beat themselves up a little bit more because yeah. you know, like, like you're you're just not stepping up to the plate, right? So you know, most of the time, nine times out of ten, the people who are attracted to working with me are the hyper responsible people, right? Everything's important. Everything needs to be addressed. I can't drop a ball anywhere. If it's not done by me, it's not done right. That hero complex, mm -hmm. right? So they're the ones who'll stay up until two o'clock in the morning, making sure that that report is pristine rather than taking the time to send it back with feedback, right? Have it come back a little better and then sending it back again because it's so much easier to do it myself. So those are, those are the kinds of things that are, that are really tough. The self-compassion piece is, uh, you know, I, I show them where they get their self-esteem from, right? And it de it depends on the personality type. I don't, you know, I'm sure you do personality testing. So each person comes with a different set of rules in world in the world where they get their love, where they get their self-esteem. You figure out where they get their self-esteem. So, uh, you know, some people will get their like me. I get my self-esteem by the value I provide other people. Right, so that's a transaction. On one hand, I look all altruistic and wonderful. On the other hand, it's a transaction. I will do for you, but tell me how much I did for you, right? Because I need to get my self esteem. Other people get their 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 value from looking good or never making a mistake, right? Or or being the first to respond, right? So so we look for where they're getting their self esteem. Now, when they start to use use the leadership skills that you and I learn, right? They were operating. Under that, this is how I get love. This is how I get self esteem all this time. Now we're taking that away from them, right? Mm -hmm. And they and they have to now, um, they now have to see where the pain is going to come, because there's always internal pain with shifting your behavior. We behave in order to get love, in order to get self esteem, in order to feel safe. That's all. The only you know for me, I, I believe that's how we how we behave. When we shift that to what our belief systems are, to what's actually more effective, we start to, to um, confront that. So first, we have to get their nervous system used to, okay, one of the things I teach my clients, uh, again, because my clients are generally hyper-responsible, is not my circus, not my monkeys, right? Just because there's a problem over in another division doesn't mean you have to ride in your white horse and fix it, right? Like, you have your own thing to deal with right here. So not my circus, not my monkeys. And for them to not to actually let something fail or let something go is like death. Right. Mm -hmm. Then there's other people whose personality type are are perfectionists or idealists. Right. So so uh those people just see how things could be. Uh so they die on they die on every hill. 
They just every meeting they go into with the with the, you know with the executive team, they fight for everything, whether it's you know the color of the paper towels in the bathroom or the direction of the company. They fight with equal zeal. So my job for them, my saying for them is, which hill do you want to die on? You have to pick a hill, right? When you go into the meeting, you have to decide what's important. You have to triage all those things that you care about and say, this is the hill I'm going to die on. The rest of the hills are going to be saved for another day. And it's, it's really difficult to, to do that in practice. But once they do that, then the overwhelm, because again, they're taking care of what's on their plate. They're taking care of what their sphere of influence is. Now the overwhelm starts to lessen and they can focus on making an impact where they're supposed to make an impact. So each one of them, though, gets a different kind of pain. Um, everybody, it's, it's different for everybody. You know, I, I use the Enneagram. Uh, mm-hmm. as a, as a, as a, as a test. Uh, and that's, you know, a personality test like Myers-Briggs or, you know, human design, any, any of these things, but it just gives me a basis of the box that people come to the conversation with. You know, I see myself as a people pleaser. I see myself as the warrior. I see myself as this person. Right. Uh, and then, and then we, we move out from there. So how, how do you, they overcome the pain? What's your advice for people to kind of get past that? negative move on phase that's that's where you and i probably have a lot of some similar things i teach them to breathe mm-hmm. right you know you, you can't work with me until you know unless you learn to just breathe and not, not a breath coach mm-hmm. but until you learn to relax and breathe into your belly and and you know be present and feel the feelings right and to right size the feelings and then i give them exercises on how to handle the thoughts in their head so they'll have a belief if i don't do this this will happen, right? And that comes, you know, we think it's because we have gray hair and we're adults and we're right, but it all comes from childhood, right? So we start to see what are we in relationship with? What's really happening? What's the reality in this situation that I'm working? What am I making up about the situation? What are past beliefs? And now we start to tease that out. So over the months, you know, as they start to see that uh, things aren't as dangerous as they thought, now they can change all the, they can change the behaviors. The funny thing is, is often they will go too far, right? They will not die on a hill that should have been die, you know, died on, or they, they, you know, and, and they'll, and then, or, or here's another one is, you know, when, when you're working with CEOs, I'm sure you see this too, is you delegate it and you've got to let your people fail. Yeah. Right. Right. And I have these perfectionist clients who are like, all right, I will let my people fail. But I have to make sure I pick the exact right thing for them to fail on so that they don't make too much damage. I'm like, dude, your perfectionism is still here. They're going to fail on something that's actually important. And you're going to have to be okay with that, right? You guys are not surgeons. So if they fail, the patient doesn't die. You lose a sale, right? You have a disgruntled client, but they're going to learn and it's going to be a coaching opportunity so that you can create another leader in the world. So I'm like, you know, it, yeah, you know who Brene Brown is? Mm-hmm. Uh, so she talks about vulnerability. Of course we do uh, vulnerability and all that. And she, re- she writes, she writes this book called, um, um, D- uh, daring greatly, right? This great book, daring greatly, you know, go out and try something, be yeah, good out of your comfort zone and all that. And then she, after she writes Daring Greatly, she goes and does all her talks and everything. And people come up and say, you know, Brene, I read your book and I dared greatly. And I fell flat on my face. I am bloody on the pavement, right? So probably more people failed than actually succeeded. And that's why she wrote Rising Strong. 
-hmm. because when we're going to try this, we are going to fail. We're not going to do it right. And we have to get okay with, if we're going to do things that we've never done before, if we're going to be bigger, if we're going to accomplish, if we're going to do that, we have to be able to be okay with failure. Easier said than done. Right. Uh, you know, for me, every time I press up send on a video on social media, I want to die. Right. Because, you know, is it good enough? Uh, what are my people going to think? And I have to know that those are the voices and this is what I do. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. It's a tough thing now. How do you, how do you get good with failure? Fail a lot. It's it, it just, it's just freaking fail a lot. Uh, that for me, that's, that's the only way to do it because I know, I notice when I'm careful for a while and then I want to do something when I want to color outside the box, it's terrifying. I notice if I'm like, like, uh, you know, let's take, let's take video, for example, videos just, you know, for me, it's, um, it's so raw and so vulnerable. Cause generally when I talk, uh, I, I share more than I intend to, and I get a vulnerability hangover on that. But when I'm in a course on how to make better videos and I'm supposed to post a video every day, it's easier to fail. It's easier to put out a video that didn't get good responses or that I got horrible responses to or something like that than if it's been a month and I haven't posted a video. Right. So it's that habit. It's building that muscle. Uh, so I think failing over and over and over again makes you better at failing. Yeah. And um, it's, you know, it gives you a, a shorter memory too. So when you, you know, you don't have to dwell on it for a month. You have another chance tomorrow. They say, they say dumb baseball players are the best baseball players. If they can't remember their last at bat, they're much looser and much more comfortable, you know, at, at this current at bat. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the first thing that a leader ought to do when they see their people kind of struggling with overwhelm issues like this? Oh, yeah, this, this, you know, and this is your expertise is you, you've got to listen. Right, mm -hmm. you've got to go and ha you know. I I work with uh, one CEO, and his his homework uh, for the two weeks in between was to take three people to lunch each week and not talk about business. Right, so so go out and just learn about your people because you know everybody's 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 working with some semblance of allostatic load. Um, uh, most people don't know what allostatic load is. It's the level of stress, uh, the level of anxiety uh, that you're you're holding in your body at any given time. Uh, so you know you wake up in the morning and you watch Morning Joe or you watch Fox and Friends. Now you know who to hate in the morning, right? Then you open Twitter, right? Then then the school calls and says you know the schools closed down because of COVID. Now you got to figure out childcare. So your allostatic load is going up and up and up and up. Let's say you have a parent who has to go into a nursing home or just ends up in the hospital, right? Now your allostatic load is going up and up and up again, right? So so what you have to find out from your people is what are they dealing with. What are they dealing with at home? What are they dealing with their own mental health? And everybody, everybody's got to have this mental health conversation all the time now, all you know, all the time, because we're all, you know, kind of on this high allostatic load stress level. Um, and then, and then, what's going on in the business? And now, once you understand who they are, what they are, what they're going through, now you can start to have conversations about what's the responsibilities of the job. What resources do they need to handle their home life? Like, do they just need to go home because they're not getting anything done and they have to deal with their parent or something like that? Or can you help them compartmentalize? But you can't do that until you understand. 
And most leaders don't want to take that time because they just don't, they don't feel like it's part of their job. Right. So the, so the, so the, the challenge for us is to get them to understand that is your job. That is your job now. And as you say, you know, when, when I, when I was listening to you, you know, this, this leading with open heart, you know, and the vulnerability and the caring, you know, helps retain people, helps to give people job satisfaction. It's a profitable thing. If we can make that connection, that actually being connected to your people and understanding who they are will be profitable, then they're, they're perfectly willing to do it because it's so fulfilling, right? It's so fulfilling to actually make a difference in your people's lives. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of leaders came up with the notion this is how this is how they grew as leaders is you know work is work home is home you know as a leader you can't talk about personal stuff and the reality is quite the opposite people mine doesn't work that way there's not a, there's not a work mark and there's not a home mark it's all one so yeah, i think it's a great point leaders really have to see that's part of their job you know helping them with the personal side is every bit work related as anything else so, really good point. So, I have one more question before I let you get out of here. And that is, how do people find you? Uh, they can just go to my website, uh, markjsilverman.com, mark the letter J, silverman.com. Everything is there. And there's also, uh, I'll give you for the show notes, we're going to put a resource page up for your people that have, you know, most of, most of my clients, because they all have ADD, won't read my book either. So, it's like, Mark, can you make a five minute video on difficult <laughs> conversations or creating strong agreements? Uh, so I make these videos and I'll put those on our resource page for your audience uh, and I'll send you the URL for that. Excellent. We'll make sure it gets up in the show notes. Well, thanks for coming on today. I think a, a lot of really good, uh, you know, good things to think about for the audience and good things to really put into practice right away. Hopefully, hopefully it was helpful. Yeah. So I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. And thanks for listening to the aim to win podcast. As always, Wherever it is you listen to your podcast, like us, follow us, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm.